0: From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. We've talked about it before on this podcast, but many developing countries aren't exactly wild about the OECD's two-pillar plan to remake how and where multinational companies pay taxes. As a refresher, Pillar 1 of the plan would change the way multinationals allocate their profits, And Pillar 2 would set a global minimum tax rate for corporations, with that rate getting applied partly through a domestic minimum top-up tax. Our guest today is going to get into why some developing countries don't feel they have a seat at the table for these years-long negotiations, and why some would prefer to have this entire project play out at the UN rather than the OECD. Logan Wart is the Executive Director of the African Tax Administration Forum, or ATAF, and he's been following this whole two-pillar process blow-by-blow. Wart spoke with Bloomberg tax and accounting reporter Donish Mekboob about how many African countries will need to beef up their technical capabilities to implement this deal, why many would prefer that this whole thing play out at the UN, and about what their issues with the OECD process
1: actually are. The two tangible issues here is that Pillar 2 introduces effectively a minimum tax that corporates must pay. As it stands, developing countries will not be entitled to be first into queue for, the, for that minimum tax, even if the income triggering that tax was generated in that jurisdiction. However, through the introduction of the domestic minimum top-up tax changes that. And so what Pillar 2 does for African countries, for developing countries in general, it gives us an opportunity, it gives jurisdictions an opportunity to introduce a domestic minimum top-up tax that is at the same level of the minimum tax that companies must pay in terms of the political outcomes. And it places the country then first in line for that minimum tax. Part of the work that we must now do is to assist countries to introduce domestic minimum top-up tax legislation. Then there's the issue of Palawan itself, there's huge delays in this. We understand the U.S. isn't coming in or may not come in or may come in and the elections and everything happening there. Canada has introduced the digital services tax and other countries is not happy. So at developed country level, at OECD, at G20 level, they can't agree. So African countries are losing the possibility in the delay of pillar one of generating that income and has the threat of sanctions hanging over them if they do introduce a digital service tax? They're not as strong as Canada who can say, we will do it, do what you want to. African countries, if they do this and they hit with sanctions, the, uh, the consequences are dire.
2: So Logan, you also rightly mentioned that there is still work that's being done on pillar one. And so far there, isn't a version of the treaty that's available for signing just yet. But given that there is a treaty draft that's been released, is that something that African countries can support in its current form?
1: Part of the difficulty here has to do with who is in scope and who is not in scope, and whether companies, multinationals operating in Africa has the type of threshold. That pillar one and pillar two brings them into scope with, and that limits the the value of the income that developing countries can generate. One of the elements of treaties you need to understand, and, and that we've been uh, grappling with the past ten years, is it, it's political and it's it's a lot to do about power relations. And African countries often have to sign away great deals of their tax because they must do that. Uh, in return for promised investment or in return for lots of other accesses a Goa and whatever else. And so the power the power relationship really gives a developing country far less negotiating power. So when you develop the, cons- the, the, the instrument, you've got to be there at the early stages. The room to negotiate the details of that, I don't believe there, there will be much because in the bigger scheme of things, the multilateral instrument will really be a bargaining between the developed countries, uh, US, Canada, Germany, France, Japan, like it normally is.
2: So there's also a lack of resources, I believe to ensure compliance with the deal. And that seems to be a big issue, particularly in Africa, the capacity that it has in order to introduce this global minimum tax framework. Could you outline the steps that are being taken to tackle this problem?
1: In Africa, all of these negotiations have been led by revenue administrations. For the developed countries, the negotiations were led by treasuries. Treasuries makes policy and legislation. Tax administrations do not. And so there is still a gap in Africa between the reporting and the decision making, because from the tax administrations that is part of these negotiations and outcome, these things must still go to a treasury that must still take it to a cabinet, that must still go to a parliament. So the political process does not make sort of the renegotiation of treaties um, and the provisions thereof something that will necessarily be smooth. So there's a lot of capacity work, there's a lot of almost lobby work there's a lot of education work, and then there's the actual renegotiation of those treaties where I explained to you, it's not only about renegotiating, it's also about the power relation and the other economic ties a jurisdiction has with a stronger jurisdiction.
2: Logan, so far the OECD has seemed to be running the show when it comes to the international tax agenda, and now there's a chance for the UN to play a greater role and there's a resolution on the table in order to do that with a number of options that have been laid out. Should these discussions at the UN level be binding on countries? And what topics do you think the UN should be addressing in international tax moving forward?
1: I think one must take a, a step back and ask the question what is the issue? In some cultures, people say there's an answer, but you don't always know what the question is. And I think before we look at the answer here, let's ask what is the question. The question seems to be multilateral tax cooperation is best placed at what type of platform? And the quest here seems to be, and correctly so, a neutral platform, an equal footing platform, a platform that deals with, the very basic principles of the allocation of global taxing rights. So when you do that, there cannot be reverence. There cannot be, you can't, this is off the table, that is off the table. We can't discuss certain items because certain countries pay more membership fees than others and therefore it's not going to allow. There's no conversations like that. So this equal footing thing is not a feel-good thing. It's a thing that is driven by economic power. Now, where should this thing be? Whether the UN is the place under the circumstances and in the current environment, probably yes, in terms of its neutrality, but only if the US is going to set up a proper tax capability. You cannot have tax discussed by, with the greatest respect by politicians or ambassadors and wait for a mandate from home and wait for the next General Assembly. Tax, you've got to discuss now and make the decision tomorrow. You've got to go home and and see if you can implement it.
2: So, Logan, there was an interesting panel that just happened at the African Tax Administration Forum's annual meeting that was about tax incentives. Do you have any thoughts about whether African countries should be looking at repealing certain incentives uh, with the implementation of Pillar 2 coming up?
1: Yes, thank you. I think the uh, Pillar 2 in itself raises the question or almost forces the issue of tax incentives on the agenda. Earlier I said Pillar 2 has what we call almost an unintended consequence of looking at incentives. So even if on this continent there wasn't any intention to look at it by governments, they now will look at it. We have been explaining this to governments, we have been encouraging, at this conference, we have encouraged governments to examine their tax incentives. We don't think that there will be an abolishing of tax incentives. Tax incentives historically has played a very crucial role in the promotion of direct or indirect investment. However, much of these incentives were good, but equally much of these incentives were not good. So it gives us an opportunity to examine this. And Logan,
2: my last questions also related to the annual meeting that just took place. Were there any other key takeaways with relation to the global tax agreement that are noteworthy from the annual meeting and might be relevant for either administrations or companies to take account of?
1: The big takeaway from this meeting has got to do with how to benefit in general on the global standards. The conference concluded that in order to optimally use all of those instruments, there's going to be a need for technology digitalization and so the backlog of or the lack of digital processes technology data and analytical capability is going to be a huge risk
0: that was logan wart with the african tax administration forum speaking with danish Mehbu, and that's it for today's podcast you can find up to the minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Naomi Jagoda is our editor from Washington. I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.